This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Hey, I'm going to start a Kickstarter so that Mona Taylor can read the whole Bible to us. You guys in for that? Yeah. Okay. I just, I love it. I'm like, I think I would have a more healthy spiritual life if Mona read the Bible to me every day. Uh, Hey, good morning. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. It is great to be with you this morning. I'm excited to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to say if you're here today and you're not really sure where you're at with this whole church thing, Jesus thing, or whatever, uh, welcome to you. Bring your questions, bring your doubts, uh, bring the places where you don't line up or you have concerns, and we'd love to get coffee with you, get to know your story, and tell you why we believe what we believe. Uh, It's really good to be with you today. So uh, here's what I want to do. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll spend the bulk of our time in the first five verses uh, and then kind of wrap up with the last few verses of, of uh, 6 through 11, or 6 through 10, rather. Uh, so go ahead and grab your Bibles or your device and get over to 1 Corinthians 2, and I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that what we're relying on is not brilliant words or somehow my ability to say something profound. <laughs> but thank you that what we get to sit in today is the profound reality that when we were far from you, the Father sent the Son to die, to shed blood for us. And I pray for any of us today where the cross has become old hat, where the blood of Jesus, his death in my place for my sins has become almost meaningless. God, we pray that you would move on our heart today. And I, I, I specifically pray that you would teach this church, teach your church what it looks like to be people who proclaim this message, not any other message and not in any other fashion, but teach us to follow in Paul's example as he entered this city and did what he did in the way that he did it. So give us the courage today to follow you. Give us the ability today to say yes to you again. Meet my friends that are far from you, the ones that need comfort from you. But today I'm I'm praying that you would shape Christians around this word today. Come and move, Jesus' name, amen. I want to kick off by just kind of walking you down a little bit of memory lane from my own story growing up as a kid and see if you can relate to any of of my story. Maybe some of this sounds familiar to you. I remember as a kid that moment when it stopped being cool to hold my mom or dad's hand in public. Do you remember that? It's like this weird moment where all of a sudden you're doing it and you realize this feels awkward. I don't want to do this anymore. And then you don't. You stop doing it. Uh, I also remember when I started to feel weird telling my mom and dad that I loved them over the phone when my friends were around or uh, when I was saying goodbye to them to stay at a friend's house. I remember that weird feeling of like, love you. You know, it's like, I don't want to say it because it feels weird. Do you remember that? Is that just me? Maybe I'm just awkward as a kid. Uh, I was awkward as a kid, but maybe you can relate to some of that too. Uh, I remember realizing that I was getting placed at the kid table for major holidays and feeling like I was too grown up to be placed at the kid table. It's like, why am I at the kid table? I'm a teenager. It's like, you're a kid. You're at the kid table. And that felt kind of patronizing to me as a teenager. And then finally, I remember my mom dropping me off uh, for my first day of high school and literally feeling embarrassed and mortified that someone I knew might see me with my mom. How crazy is that? The woman who gave birth to me in a hospital bed, I am nervous to be seen in public with this woman. And I know that that sounds weird, but I think that you can relate to these feelings. If you ever remember any time in your life feeling too old or too cool or too mature for whatever, 
then you are one step closer to kind of understanding the ethos of the Christians in the church at Corinth. Okay, now I'll explain what I'm talking about in just a minute, but one more walk down memory lane, but this time from maybe a different angle. I remember the struggle of just trying to fit in in junior high. And and maybe it was harder for me than other people. I was homeschooled all the way up until the middle of my eighth grade year. I'm one of 10 kids. My mom literally freaked out. She's awesome. But I mean, who doesn't freak out if you have 10 kids? I, I freak out and I've got three. So she freaked out and she's like, I can't do this anymore. She just shipped us off to public school. So here I am, this very sheltered, very like all I know is homeschool and church And I get shipped off to junior high. And we all know junior high is really awesome. The kids are really friendly. Everybody's so accepting in junior high. No, it was awful, right? I sat by myself every day, no lie, every day for about a year all by myself at lunch, right? That's where you go, aw, I'm fine, okay? You know, I've been to counseling, it's fine. Um, So, but here's the thing. I remember feeling like I will do whatever it takes just to belong. I hate feeling this way. I will literally, I'll compromise my convictions. I will put on a mask and pretend. I will say or do or believe whatever just so long as I can be seen as cool and accepted in this crowd. Can anybody relate to that? Some of you are just always cool and and it was always a bummer for people like me, but I wasn't and it was hard. And so uh, if you can relate to that feeling of wanting to just fit in and being willing to do whatever it takes to fit in, then you can understand more and more the ethos of the Christians in the city of Corinth. Feeling too cool, too mature, like they've graduated from something or doing whatever it takes to fit in. Now, with that in mind, to understand our passage today and really to understand where we are in this letter and where Paul is heading over the next chapter or two, you have to understand Corinth's problem. You've got to understand what was going wrong in this church for Paul to be writing the letter the way that he's writing it to say the things that he's saying to this church. The first thing that you need to realize is that the boundary lines between the world and the church had almost entirely disappeared. That rather than what most churches were facing at the time in the first century in the middle of the Roman Empire, being one of suffering and persecution and opposition to the people of God, most churches were getting persecuted for being followers of Jesus. But this church in particular was actually a church that was making compromise so that they could belong to the world. They were willing to synchronize. They were willing to bend. They were willing to do whatever it takes to fit in and belong and be seen as cool and mature and attractive to the city of Corinth. That's what was happening in this church. That's one of the reasons why Paul is writing the letter the way that he's writing. And specifically what he's dealing with is a church that is wrapped up in the empty philosophies of the world at the time. Corinth was a city known for wisdom. In fact, the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. It's where we get our English word philosophy, right? Philosophy or where we get our other English word sophistication comes from this Greek idea of wisdom. And this idea of wisdom was incredibly popular in the city of Corinth. Like so popular that they would have these traveling sophists, these traveling philosophers that would come into the city of Corinth And when you think of their vision of wisdom, think of it similarly to like how we might describe a worldview. 
although it's not entirely relatable. It's sort of like our worldview. These traveling philosophers had a worldview, a, a vision for the good life, a way to bank your life and a way to live towards the future that they would deem as good and true and beautiful. And all these different traveling philosophers, these sophists had different visions, different competing ideas of the good life or different worldviews, different ways of living. And so everybody was drawn up in like, what version of the good life are you after? Which, which philosopher do you follow? Which traveling sophist is the one that you really follow after and build your life on? This idea of wisdom had started to make its way into the church so much so that what was happening in Corinth is they actually started to minimize the wisdom of God and started to adopt the wisdom of the world and anything that to them and their own brain felt like it was shocking or scandalous or anything in their own brain that felt weird or felt like foolishness to the city of Corinth, they started to view as foolishness themselves. This is what was happening in the city of Corinth. And beyond that, what's even more fascinating is that they started to pretend or feel as if they were superior to the Apostle Paul himself. So they're looking at Paul and they're like, oh man, I mean, Paul helped me come to know Jesus, but we've graduated from Paul. We're a little bit too mature for Paul. We don't want to be seen in public with Paul, sort of how I didn't want to be seen with my mom when she dropped me off at high school for the first day. It's like, yeah, you helped me get here, but now that I'm here, I don't need you anymore. And in fact, some of the things that you say, Paul, I think now are wrong because of what the world around me is telling me, because of the traveling philosophers that I'm listening to, because of the wisdom that I'm taking in. And so here's what Paul has been doing. It's brilliant. Paul is taking them to task about their very concept of wisdom. Uh, wisdom, the word, is mentioned more times in 1 Corinthians than any other uh, place in the New Testament. In fact, it's mentioned 26 times in this letter alone, and 20, or 28 times in the letter alone. 26 of those show up in the first three chapters. So what Paul is doing is he's taking their vision of wisdom, and he's flipping it on its head, and he goes, oh, okay, you think, you think that you guys are really wise now? You guys think that you have the wisdom of Corinth now, and you don't need the wisdom of God now? Well, let me show you that actually the wisdom of the world is actually ridiculously foolish, and what feels foolish, the wisdom of God, is actually the only thing that's really wise. What Paul is saying is that there is a giant chasm, this chasm that cannot be gapped between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. And it's so big, the gap is so humongous that actually the wisdom of God feels like folly to the world. That what actually truly is wise feels insanity to the watching world around us. That's what Paul has been doing. So here's what he does. He, last week, went to task on how actually the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Then the second thing that he does is talk about how even the people that God chooses feels foolish. He doesn't choose the wise. He doesn't choose the mature. He doesn't go after people that you would want on the team. He goes after the worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel, the scum of the earth. And he's like, those are my people, right? So the, the cross is folly. The people are folly. And then today what he's going to talk about is even the way that he presented this message itself is folly to the world. And that leads me to the first thing that I want you to see in our text today, which is Paul's proclamation and his weakness. Paul's proclamation and his weakness. So if you're with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let's look at verse 1. Here's what it says. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, before we see what Paul is saying here, we need to just kind of explore what he isn't saying here. Often this has been misused and twisted to say that if we're going to be faithful, uh, specifically it's uh, often aimed at preachers. If you're going to be a faithful preacher of the gospel, then you have to basically be obtuse and stupid and unintelligent. You can't put together words in a compelling fashion. You have to just say the, the story in the most kind of you know, wonky, clunky, broken way possible so that you don't detract from the message itself. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is brilliant. Paul is actually sophisticated. He was trained by one of the the leading rabbis of his day. We also think that Paul had incredible knowledge growing up as a Roman Jewish citizen. So he actually was like trained in Greco-Roman culture as well as Jewish culture. Paul is brilliant. In fact, one of the commentaries I'm using for this study as we go through this study together is over 1,000 pages long on just this letter that's 16 chapters. Why is that? Because Paul is insanely brilliant. His logic is flawless. He's actually like saying some of the most incredibly powerful, well-stated things in this letter. So this is not an argument for like being stupid or being obtuse or being unintelligent. What, what Paul is not saying is if you're going to be faithful, you got to be dumb. That's not what he's saying. The, the second thing that is not being said here, and this is really important, you've got to get this, is that this is primarily not a passage about what I'm doing in this moment up here on Sunday morning. I, I've never heard this taught, actually, growing up in church. I've never heard chapter 2, 1 Corinthians taught, and it not be aimed at preachers. Uh, but to do that is to misunderstand the difference between preaching and teaching. And I know none of you care, but I've got to tell you about the difference anyway. The difference between preaching and teaching is this, that in the New Testament, the word to describe what I'm doing in this moment is ironically not preaching as much as it is preaching teaching. Every time the word teaching is used in the New Testament, it almost always refers to what I'm doing in this moment today. Preaching is a very different thing in the, the, the world of the New Testament. Preaching is more like what you do when you uh, have something good or exciting, some news, some event that you want to herald and announce to your friends. That's what preaching is. So preaching could be like when you call your friends and you're like, hey, did you see the game yesterday? It was great, wasn't it? That's preaching. You're announcing a good news, like, here's what happened. I want to herald this game that happened. In, in Roman culture, preaching happened all the time. Uh, Caesar went and defeated our enemies. We're going to enter into the city, and we're going to preach this good news that, hey, Caesar went out, and he defeated our enemies. So preaching is just heralding, announcing news or an event, something that has life-changing significance. That's what preaching is. So, so track with me. What Paul is not talking about is what I'm doing today behind this pulpit with you this morning. What Paul is actually talking about is what he chose to do when he entered into the city of Corinth for the first time. He's talking about his missional strategy. Paul is talking about his evangelistic plan, how he wanted to take the good news of Jesus 
to a group of people that were lost in darkness in a city like Corinth, how does he want to try to communicate this message to those people? So in other words, this is actually a sermon for everybody today. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're someone who believes the gospel, then actually you have something to to learn from this text today because he's not talking about what I'm doing. He's talking about what you and I are called to do with our lost friends, our coworkers, our family, the people in your neighborhoods, those in your life who are far from God. So with that in mind, notice what he's saying here, that his plan was not to enter into Corinth And with powerful oration and ability and with a lot of winsomeness and a lot of logic as it is logic in Greco-Roman culture to herald the announcement of the gospel and to break down defenses. All Paul does is he walks into the city and he very clearly preaches Jesus and him crucified. And he does it in such a way that his words won't diminish or detract or take away from the clear message of Jesus. He's not trying to be fancy. He's not trying to be attractive. He's not trying to be cool. He just walks into the city with the message of Jesus and him crucified. Now, this is powerful because if you remember what the cross meant to them in the first century, it starts to put some really interesting flesh on this passage. You and I have a hard time envisioning the cross not deeply connected to Christian symbolism. Am I right? When you see a cross like this one in the room today, it makes sense to see a cross in this room because, well, after all, this is a church and churches have crosses on them because the cross is the greatest symbol of Christianity in the entire world and it has been for hundreds of years. But in Paul's day and specifically when he's writing this letter in like 55 AD in Corinth, the cross, you've got to get this, had zero Christian symbolism. You didn't have earrings that had crosses on it. You didn't have art or jewelry in your house that had crosses on it. You didn't have any symbolism of Christianity like connected to the cross at all because the cross in their world was a Roman execution device meant to kill enemies of Rome, meant to punish criminals of Rome. That's all it was. So a modern equivalent of what the cross was for us today would be like, what was for them rather versus us today would be like if you and I were wearing earrings of uh, like the, a Hiroshima cloud, that, the bomb that we dropped in Japan. Like why would you do that? That was, that, was a, that was a horrible, awful thing that happened and lots of lives were lost. Like who's gonna wear jewelry of a Hiroshima cloud? That, that was like, that was a sign of judgment and destruction on enemies. Like that, you don't wear something. That's what the cross was for them. That's what the cross was for them. So think about it. If you're someone in Corinth, the cross is not an attractive message. If you're a Greek, it was the reminder that Rome defeated you about 200 years before. If you're a a Roman and you're living in Corinth, and by the way, many of the people who lived in Corinth were Roman soldiers who had retired, then all the cross was for them was that thing that they did to the people that they considered their enemies. If you're a Jew who lived in Corinth, and by the way, there were Jews that lived in Corinth, then the way that you envision the cross was with all of that baggage plus some Old Testament baggage as well. Because in Deuteronomy, it says that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So actually, as a Jewish person, you would look at something like this over here and be like, not only is it a sign of Roman execution and punishment, but it is a sign of God's curse on your life. If you get hanged on a tree on a cross, God has turned his back on you. 
That's what the cross meant. So think about this, friends. With all of this baggage, this was a message that was offensive and foolish to this city. And yet Paul doesn't downplay it. He doesn't diminish it. He doesn't try to be overly winsome with it. He walks into the city and he very, very clearly preaches Jesus and him crucified. And if you think, oh, well, he, you know, he did it, but he's Paul. So he did it brilliantly, and he did it spectacularly. And that's why he was so effective. That's why these, this church was birthed in Corinth. No, notice what he says in verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Like, if you're Paul and you're walking into Corinth and all of that baggage exists around the idea of the cross, aren't you going to be a little bit freaked out too? Now, there's been a lot of debate. Scholars have debated about verse 3 for a long time. They've wondered if maybe the issue here was if Paul had a physical ailment. There's that thing that he says later on in 2 Corinthians about, you know, he had this thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times for God to deliver him of this thorn in the flesh. And, and then eventually God says, I'm not going to take this away because my power is perfected in what? And you are weakness, right? So actually, there's something about Paul that was inherently weak, and we don't know what it is. We do think from other texts in the New Testament that possibly Paul had some physical deformity or some eye issue. We don't know if this happened after he became a Christian or what, but there's something about Paul that when he would walk in the room, you'd kind of go, ugh, a little bit. He, he wasn't like physically forceful. He wasn't, we don't think, a very large man. So here he is writing these letters, and actually you're going to see this later in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. They're like, man, he writes these amazing letters, and then he shows up, and you're like, wah, wah, that's Paul? He, he's kind of not very forceful. So scholars have debated, like, is that what's really going on here? But actually, friends, maybe so. We don't really know fully. But if you read Acts 18, what we realize is that Paul was so freaked out to be in Corinth, so terrified, was actually under the threat of so much persecution that he was ready to leave. And God had to appear to him in a vision that night and say, hey, don't leave because I've got many people in this city. Go on and proclaim the, the gospel. Go on preaching Jesus and the cross. And so at bare minimum, what's happening here is that Paul shows up in the city and don't think of Paul walking in with his cape blowing in the wind, full of swagger, ready to just preach the gospel in power. Paul's scared. He's nervous. He's full of weakness. He's like, man, what if, what if I talk about the cross and the Jews start looking at me with blank stares? What if I start talking about the death of Jesus in our place and the, the Romans scoff at that because it's so stupid that we would claim a Messiah died on their cross? Like, like they're not going to understand this. This is offensive and this is dumb and this is folly. Paul is scared and yet he shows up and he preaches Jesus and him crucified. Now, what does that have to do with us today? Well, I actually think this has a lot to do with you and I today. Fast forward to the world that we live in. Now, no longer is the visual image of a cross a massive barrier to people. It's now recognized that the cross is a Christian symbol and it has meaning to Christians, even if people think it's dumb. It's understood that this references something about our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, at least on some level. But friends, please understand, and you feel this, that there are a host of things that you and I now believe as Christians that the watching world are going to look at and go, that's stupid, that's dumb, that's offensive, that's immoral, that's wrong. 
In fact, Aaron Wren wrote a great article on First Things where he talked about the different stages of our culture. Uh, and he, he talks about how the church has moved from a church-positive context to a church-neutral context. And now we're in this church-negative context. In other words, that no longer is it seen as the right, upstanding, good citizen thing to do to go to church and be a Christian. But actually, to be a follower of Jesus is to be part of the problem as it's perceived in our world. That you and I as followers of Jesus are no longer seen as the moral majority, if you will. We're actually seen as the immoral ones because of different things that we believe. That if you have friends that are far from God, chances are they look at you and they're not like, hey, I can respect that you and I disagree. Chances are they're like, hey, what you believe about this is offensive and cruel. What you think about this is wrong. And all of a sudden, you and I are in a world where there's a ton of things that we believe that are offensive and foolish, just like there was in Paul's day in the city of Corinth. Let me just name a few. The historic Christian perspective on sex and sexuality. What the Bible teaches about gender. What the Bible teaches about marriage. What the Bible teaches about claims of truth and sin and wrath and judgment. What is good and what is evil? What the Bible teaches about money and possessions is so countercultural to American way of living. Forgiveness and loving our enemies. And friends, we could go on and on. By the way, that's not to mention the actual core basics of the Apostles' Creed that we just recited together, that we actually believe in a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We actually believe in a God who loved the world so much that he sent his Son to be born of a virgin. We actually believe that 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 son who is born of a virgin is fully God and fully man and lived a sinless life and then crawled up on a cross and his death actually has significance for my life today, 2,000 years later, and that he didn't stay dead, but he rose again from the dead and then he literally floated into heaven and he sits there at the right hand of God and he is the true and rightful king over all things and he will come one day to judge the living and the dead and remake this world. We believe that? Have you ever thought, like, just pause for a minute, that's a little weird, right? Like, that message doesn't make a lot of sense, and that's not to mention the host of things that we believe that are seen as foolishness and offensive. Friends, here's why I'm saying this, is because in the culture that we live in, you and I are facing some real temptations around this message of Jesus and the cross. Some real temptations. Let me give you two of them. There's probably more. The first one is to be overly winsome and unoffensive. Is Paul's approach to mission and evangelism in the city of Corinth your approach and my approach? Hey, friends, it's good to be kind. It's really good to be loving. It's actually unhelpful to be immature and to be a jerk. It's unhelpful to draw this us versus them line in our world and pretend as if we're better than everybody because honestly, don't you know yourself and myself enough to know that we're not? Like it's good to be well-read and to think deeply. Like if you, if you, that's what I spend my time doing is trying to read about culture and read about what's happening in our world and study and have good answers for things. That's all fine and that's all good. But listen, one of the greatest dangers that I see play out in our church, especially those of you that are younger is this strong desire in an age of 
cancel culture and safe space talk to be overly winsome and offensive that we're actually dialing down the clarity of Jesus and his cross so much so that it's like our only goal is just to show you, hey, we're sort of normal too. Won't you like us? Hey, we're okay too. Like, won't you, like, we have a brilliant answer for this. And let me show you why this vision is better than your vision. And let me, and, and at the end of the day, friends, Paul is saying, hey, I showed up and I was weak. I was trembling. I was filled with fear because of the message I was preaching, which was Jesus and the cross. And I just think that we're, we're actually facing a temptation in our moment today to where what we need to do is not necessarily dial down our winsomeness, but we need to dial up our clarity as followers of Jesus to say, hey, I actually am a Christian. I actually do follow Jesus. I actually do believe that he died on a cross in my place for my sins. I actually believe that he has wrath that was reserved for me, but he took it on the cross in my place. I actually believe that there is such a thing called sin, and here's what it is. I actually believe that there's a way to oppose the living God, but there's something that he's done in Jesus to reconcile us and bring us home. We actually need to proclaim this message. Friends, don't forget 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. You can't dress it up and fix it and put makeup on it to make it not folly to those who are perishing. 1 Peter 2.8 refers to Jesus himself as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, I I don't want to make like 50 other offenses before we get to Jesus, right? But at the end of the day, Jesus himself is a rock of offense. And I think as Christians, we just need to sit in that for a minute and be okay with that because it's always been that way, okay? That's the first temptation. Second temptation is to be more formed by the world's wisdom than by God's wisdom. And that's what's happening in Corinth, is that over time, the church started to adopt the worldview of the city rather than Jesus and his kingdom. That over time, they became more enamored with these traveling philosophers and more enamored with what this person was saying and this person in power was saying and this new book and this new thinking and whatever, that they actually started to look at the Apostle Paul himself and be like, hey, it's not that I'm not a Christian, it's just that I know better than Paul. It's not that I don't believe the Bible, it's just I think Paul's misusing it. I think Paul's twisting it. And now I actually have the right reading of Scripture And they're putting themselves above the Apostle Paul. And I actually see this play out in our own church and all around us today where you and I are just so plugged into our culture. We're so inundated. We're being so formed and shaped left and right by what is happening around us, social media, all these other elements that are kind of playing into our loves and our desires and what we think of as the good life, that we're getting less and less and less aware of Jesus and the cross and his kingdom and his worldview, suddenly to where you and I start to put ourselves in a position of evaluating other pastors or historic Christianity or the Bible itself, or this is when it gets really weird, when you start looking at God and going, I think I know better than God. I actually think that God being the way he is is really annoying and distasteful to me. And when God becomes distasteful for you as a Christian, something has gone desperately wrong. So I just want to point these out as temptations that you and I face. And what Paul is doing in Corinth is powerful because this is not about Sunday sermons. This is about how you and I as followers of Jesus actually engage the lost world around us with a message that has always been, always been folly, always been weird, always been offensive. And yet Paul, full of weakness, full of trembling, that's what he does. He shows up and says, I've got two things to talk about, Jesus and the cross. 
That's the first thing I want you to see. Here's the second and final thing. What happens when Paul does that? What's the result of this pure, simple, non-fancy proclamation of Jesus and the cross? Well, the second thing I want you to see is God's power and his wisdom. Look at verse 4. He says, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What does that mean? Well, some people thought this demonstration of the spirit and power is that Paul shows up and he's weak, he's fearful, he's trembling, but then all of a sudden miracles started happening left and right. That he's praying for the sick and they're getting healed and people are getting raised from the dead and you know people that are blind are being able to see and there's other things that are happening that really testify, hey, this is a message from God. And, and I want to say, reading the book of Acts, it is clear that miracles and signs and wonders accompanied the ministry of the apostles and non-apostles, other Christians, where dramatic, powerful things were happening left and right, which, by the way, still happen to this very day. That's totally what the Bible teaches and what I believe. But that, I don't think that's primarily what Paul is talking about. I don't think what he's saying is that when he showed up with this foolish, offensive message that all of a sudden people were getting healed and signs and wonders were happening. Here's what I think he's pointing to. This demonstration of the spirit and of power is a reference to the greatest miracle that could ever happen, which is when a dead heart comes alive to God for the first time. This is so crazy, guys. Like the, the story that you and I have as followers of Jesus is not that we were out in the ocean floating, floating, you know, about to sink, about to die, and then Jesus throws us the life raft, and then he pulls us in. We're like, oh, thank you for saving me. No, no, no. We sank. We died. We'd been dead for weeks. We were at the bottom of the ocean, and yet God in his mercy and in his love in that moment made our heart come alive to him. When we were dead, when we were far from God, when we hated God, God did something when someone told us this message about Jesus and the cross that all of a sudden one day it just it clicked and our dead heart comes alive to God. Like, think about your own story for just a minute. It, I bet you every single person in this room that's a follower, follower of Jesus does not have a story that goes like this. Well, I had all these objections to Christianity. Someone sat me down and they very winsomely, very articulately, brilliantly went through all of my objections and they just showed me how I was wrong and I realized that Jesus really was the Christ and I decided to follow Jesus, right? No, what happened? Probably you were a little kid and your Sunday school teacher said, hey, God loves you and he died for you and he, he wants to be with you and actually because he died, you can be forgiven and you can have new life and as a eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, I love God now. Or maybe you're sitting there at a steaming hot youth camp, hearing some guy rant and rave, none of it even makes sense to you, and all of a sudden you're like, I think I want Jesus. <laughs> or maybe you're sitting with a friend over coffee, and they're terrified, they're shaking, and they're like, hey, um, do you know what would happen in your life? Do you know where you would go? And, and they probably told you, looking back, like, a version of the gospel that you're like, oh, I would never say that to anybody else today. Or they left off so many things. Or they had so many elements about that message that were wrong. That's at least my story anyway. And yet God used their foolish, weak message that was probably wrong, probably not done winsomely, probably not done persuasively, but somehow this pure message that Jesus died on a cross in our place for our sins and your heart came alive to God. 
That's what happened. That's what Paul is saying here is that we don't have to be really brilliant. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be really winsome. We don't have to have all the object answers to every objection out there. It's Jesus and the cross. That's the way that God has designed this message to be. That's what he's saying. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 6. This is the way the wisdom of God has always worked. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. What Paul is saying is, it feels folly, but it's actually wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, they didn't understand what God was doing. Had they understood what God was doing in their brilliance and in their sophistication and in their philosophy and in their intelligence, they would not have killed the Lord of glory. But as it is written, quotes Isaiah, I believe 60, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, what, what happened? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The way you made the turn, the way your dead heart came alive, the way all of a sudden you went from hating God to loving God, the way all of a sudden you went from being opposed to Jesus and Christianity to now sitting in this room as a follower of Jesus was because the Spirit revealed this to you. He made the message come alive. That's how you got here. This is how God has always preferred it to be. So friends, I actually think Christianity offers the most compelling vision of the good life that's out there. I actually think that what Christianity teaches about sex and sexuality and gender and marriage and singleness and on and on go down all the offensive things that we believe is so beautiful and good and true. I actually believe all of that. And yet Paul and God in his wisdom, he doesn't lead with this compelling vision. I even think about the Beatitudes. He leads with what feels like folly to the world, but is actually the wisdom of God. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who get persecuted, right? Jesus and the cross. These things don't make sense to the average natural person out there without the revelation of the Holy Spirit. That's the way God designed it to be. So where do we go from here? Well, the first thing is Jesus and his cross needs to be proclaimed. I've been personally convicted about this preparing for the sermon, studying this passage. I was thinking about, man, when, when was the last time I actually sat with my neighbors who are far from God and made the turn in the conversation to say, yeah, I, I know it's weird. I'm a pastor and you know that. And here I am trying to be really winsome. But hey man, Jesus died for your sins. Like, he, he actually did that. He actually loved you and he died for you. He wants you to know him. He's alive today. Won't you trust him? But I just want to ask you, like, when was the last time you actually verbalized the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to your friends, your family, your coworkers, those that you've been praying for that are far from God? Hey, man, let's live lives that are, like, really compelling and make them a little bit crazy with how we live. Like, let's live lives that they're like, why are you so generous? Why are you so kind? Why are you so 
whatever. Why do you love your enemies? Why do you forgive people so well? Let's live lives like that, that actually like make them wonder about our lifestyle. But also let's articulate and verbalize the clear message of the gospel because that in God's wisdom is the way that he's designed this whole thing to work. Second thing is I want to invite you with me to embrace the invitation to not be fancy or attractive or cool and unoffensive. Can we just rest in the fact that we are none of those things and that's not where the power lies? The power lies in the Holy Spirit's ability to take dead hearts and make them alive through the announcement of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's where the power is. It's not in you. Stop trying so hard to be fancy. Stop trying so hard to not be so unoffensive. Just preach Jesus in the cross. Number three, stop assuming you know more than God. Like where you and God start to disagree, realize that it's because you've been co-opted by the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. And actually what you're falling into is truly foolish and what God is actually inviting into is truly wisdom. And the Corinthian church had just been so enamored with Corinthian culture that it was what they were imbibed. They were drunk on the spirit of the age. And I love this quote from William Ralph Inge. He says, whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. Just embrace the fact that what we've believed as Christians has always been weird, but the power lies not in us. It's in the Holy Spirit to reveal this message. And then finally, the last thing, shame now glory later. Shame now, glory later. If you're a follower of Jesus, shame now. <laughs> In other words, we're, we're always going to look weird. We're going to receive cultural pushback. We're going to receive shame. And hopefully it's not because we're being jerks or mean or stupid in ourselves. Hopefully it's because we're standing in historic Christianity with humility and with gentleness and with love, but we're standing in historic Christianity but even if you do it as best as Tim Keller himself, shame now, but glory later. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter, one, verse, or chapter 2, verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for his glory? No, look at what it says. For our glory. Most of us don't have a category for anything but the glory of God. This is... He's decreed something for our glory. What is the thing that he's decreed? Well, look at what he goes on to say in verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. You cannot imagine as a follower of Jesus. I can't imagine what God has prepared for us. It's crazy, isn't it? that what we used to think was the most stupid, silly, offensive message about Jesus on the cross, now it's our only hope. And we're actually waiting a day where the kingdom of God fully returns to this earth. Shame now, but glory later. Friends, think about Paul. And I'm done. I'm done with this. Think about Paul. Paul, less than 15 years after he writes this letter, is led out of his prison cell and beheaded by Rome. The same day, Peter is executed on a cross by being hung upside down because he felt like he wasn't worthy to hang on a cross in the same way that Jesus was. The early church then experienced an unbelievable amount of persecution and suffering and death and opposition from the culture. Shame then. 
And yet, today if you travel to Rome, if you travel all over the Roman Empire, what you will find is relics and rubble. But if you get on a plane anywhere and travel anywhere in the world, whether it's Mumbai, India, or Sri Lanka, or Cambodia, or if you come to you know, parts of Norman or Moore or Oklahoma, it doesn't matter where you go in the world, you will find the church of Jesus Christ alive and well, people that are standing in historic Christianity, preaching Jesus and his cross. And what's crazy is you and I can't name one single sophist that was highly popular in the Corinthian culture, can we? But we can talk about Paul and we can talk about Peter and these other men and women who have gone before us. Shame then, but glory later. Shame now, but glory later. Live with the end in mind. With that, I want to invite you. Would you stand with me? Something that is said later on in 1 Corinthians that is beautiful to me about the Lord's Supper, about this table that we're being invited to. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the message that we've banked our entire life on, the Lord's death until he comes. And so his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, and even today, as you come and receive this meal, you're not just experiencing comfort from the Holy Spirit, you're not just encountering the very presence of God through the Holy Spirit. You're also proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Let's be people of proclamation of Jesus and his cross. Amen? And so with this prayer in, on, on, your, on your lips today as you come to this meal, come and say, Jesus, would you just set me free from trying to be fancy and cool and unoffensive and overly... Just let me proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the prayer for us today if you're a follower of Jesus. We have bread, we have wine.